Lingard is joining in, and he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the roof, and touched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka! Hello and welcome to the Bruise Banana FC podcast where we're kicking off the new season with the Community Shield where we get to talk about a 1-1 but penalty win against Manchester City. Um, going into also we have um, some transfer news where we're quite lucky to say that Fabrizio Romano has done a, timed his announcement pretty perfectly to, to time it with us recording here. And today I'm joined firstly by Varun. How are you doing Varun? Doing great, doing great. And also, I'm joined by Drew. How are you doing, my friends? Yeah, I'm all good. Good to be back with you guys ahead of the new season. And we're also joined by Ben. Ben, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I've spent the last 30 seconds trying to come up with a David Raya pun to introduce myself with, but um, no luck so far. <laughs> you should have said that. I'll give you a bit more time. You're, you're oh, a rare sunshine to have on here, Ben. Oh, uh, look at you, you sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and we'll save the rare talk for a bit later, but that is obviously one of the, the massive things that we're going to talk about. Um, but firstly, we did win the Community Shields. It was against Manchester City. Obviously, um, there's been debate over whether or not we even deserve to be there because a lot of people said at the end of last season that United had a better season than us, but you know they're nowhere to be seen. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Drew. And the first question is, and it's one that gets brought up pretty much every every year, so Arsenal win the Community Shield. Is it a trophy? I mean, I, I think it is. If you look at, you know, other leagues around Europe, you know, if you look at, you know, um, Bundesliga, La Liga or whatever, they have their Super Cup equivalent. And I think that's taken pretty seriously. Um, I don't think it necessarily has any bearing on how the season's going to go per se. But I think depending on the club's context in particular, and so in this case, ours, I think it, it does matter because we went toe-to-toe with City. We did look the better side for about at least half that match. And I think it does set a market for the players in terms of just morale, knowing that they can stand to a club that just won you know, the treble last season, only a few months ago. Um, a lot of the performances across the pitch as well sort of show that we can actually stand up and be counted. So, you know, a lot, a lot of fans won't take the the, the credibility of, of the trophy seriously, but I think it does, you know, it's the annual curtain raiser, right? And it's also the context around it. So I think for me, it matters this season. Maybe if it was a, a different time, maybe maybe not so much, but I think given everything that's at stake this season, I think it's not just a trophy, but it's more than that. I think it's a real indicator that we can actually improve on last season and push it again. I think that's all that really matters. Yeah, and to be fair, the the, the Charity Shield, it's been a bit of a, a poison chalice, I think, recently, hasn't it? Because I think Leicester won it and they finished eighth. And then Liverpool in it last season and they finished eighth. So as as you said there, it's no real indication on when you're going to finish. But I think the main takeaway for me, and, and this is coming from someone that personally doesn't actually think of it as a trophy. I think of it as, and the reason I don't is because I think that there's there's too many different things in the sense that Man City has, has been said a few weeks behind us in preseason. But I think that the big thing is, as you say, the mental block that surrounds whether or not we can beat Manchester City in a game that Manchester City definitely wanted to win, and and they definitely wanted to win that. You can tell by the, the reaction from Pep and Walker when they scored. So I do think that 
going up against Man City, going against them kind of toe-to-toe, playing well against them and coming out on top does give us a good kind of mental footing to to go into the season and compete with them. But at the same time, I do think that um, uh, it's not something that we can get too excited about, especially by the last few that have won it. Um, so next thing is this, Ben, so in, in terms of that, whether or not you think it's a trophy or not, I don't know. But um, in terms of the takeaways from this game, like like what, when you're watching this game and you're looking at the performance and you're thinking about how it's going to factor in the season, what do you think are the big takeaways that we can take out of it? Well, firstly, I mean, we won it, so it's a trophy. Um, <laughs> just going to clear that up right now. And secondly, in terms of takeaways, I thought that I was I was really encouraged by Euron Timber. Um, I think he slotted straight in and also the fact that he could play, I mean, he played left back, but he could play right back quite easily. Ben White, again, excellent. So I think the defensive block and the sort of backup defence is much better now. We're much better suited to sort of play um, like against the Manchester City. And also I really liked the versatility that Kai Havertz brought us up front. I know some people have been saying, oh, you play up front and some have been saying, oh, he's, you know, he's a midfielder and whatever, but I liked the idea that he could play both and he played up front and offered us plenty to sort of evade the Manchester City press by just going long. I think there's one bit on about 20 minutes where we go long to him and then he brings it down beautifully and holds off Ruben Diaz and sets us away wide. And um, yeah, I thought I thought he was excellent bar the missed chances and I thought it was really encouraging um, to see. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that to be fair, we I mean, I wasn't personally expecting to see him start the game up front, but I think that there was like a like a, a almost a grace to how he played, like the, the like how he's able to hold up the ball and bring other people into play, and it, it kind of shows, especially against a team like Men City, that it's a, a viable option for the season. And I also agree with um, you, kind of singling out Timber, who I thought, in my opinion, was man of the match. I thought that he was fantastic both defensively and he was um, good on the ball as well. And I think that when you're starting. You know, your first, I put in kind of air quotes, competitive game against a team like Man City and you're up against the, that kind of quality of player, then it, it's tough, especially when you're replacing Sinchenko, who plays probably the most kind of ultra-specific role we have in the team. And to do it with that level of uh, intelligence and, and to do it to that level of quality is really, really good. Um, Varun, in terms of Timber, this feels to me like it's a massive signing. And it's like we've already seen him play like on a right back, so him a left back. We we know he can play centre back as well. So this this could be a player that has such a huge bearing on our season. So it, but in terms of your opinion, when you're looking at the season ahead and you see what Timber is going to give us and where he's going to factor in, like how big a signing do you think this is? I think it's it's massive and it's one that's gone under the radar quite a bit because it was Massively, kind of happening yeah. at the same time as the uh, Declan Rice transfer. Uh, but no, you're right. The, the fact that like we know that he can play at right back, we know he can cover at centre back if needed. But I don't think he's played at left back all too often up until now. And the fact that Arteta clearly sees that he can cover that is a huge boost because, like you say, there's some roles which we think are specific to certain players to allow us to play the way we have, the way Zinchenko controlled uh, midfield for us so much last season. But when he wasn't available, we didn't quite have the right player to deputize for him and do the exact same role. Tierney's a good deputy for a left-back, but he's more defensive, more of your traditional wide defender. 
whereas Timber, because of his confidence in himself to be able to play in an inverted role, clearly from the right or the left, it's um, it means that now if Zinchenko is still having any sort of injury problems, we can rest him. We can make sure that we put Timber there instead and ensure that Zinchenko doesn't suffer any longer-term injuries where possible. I think that's exactly right, to be honest, because when last season you're looking at the point of the season where it felt like we fell away, it wasn't just because Saliba got injured, even though that was you know the main thing, because the, the quality of Saliba was huge. But also, I think when not only Saliba comes out, but Zinchenko comes out, it's so huge the way we play and just how he kind of steps into midfield and kind of gives something that no one else in the team was, was able to give us last season. And I think that especially with Granit Xhaka going, who was probably you know the closest thing to giving us that midfield presence, it was so important. And I think we spoke about it when we were talking about Xhaka leaving, that it was so important that we signed someone that kind of fills a bit more of that Sinchenko void. And the fact that we're able to do that for a player that we know can play on the other hand side, and now we've also seen that the manager's happy to play him on the left-hand side really does show that we've potentially kind of very shrewdly, and I agree with what you say, like very under the radar, this signing in, in a lot of ways. I think that at the end of the season, we could look back on that signing and really feel that that he's played a massive bearing on, on where we finish. Um, but another signing that we made in January last season that I want to kind of bring to you, Ben, and this is coming from me, someone who like, anyone who spoke about it, I was, I was not enamoured when we signed Trossard. Um, and I, I think that's a lot down to the fact that I don't think that he's a, a great deputy for Martinelli. And I probably still hold that opinion, but I do think that we've seen him play in so many other positions now where he's just been so good. And he comes off the bench and obviously he gets a bit lucky, but you know, you, you buy a ticket to win the lottery and all that, all that jargon, but he comes on and it just feels like the more I see him, the more, and I'm I'm very careful to kind of make comparisons of this, but I, I feel like the more and more I kind of get in that kind of Cazorla vibe from him where, you know, you're seeing like this brilliant ability in small spaces and those central areas. And it just feels like he always pops up. And I think, you know, we mentioned it on the on the last um, podcast where where we said that he's probably the, the best player of our preseason and probably unlucky to miss out on starting against Manchester City. But it, it just feels like he, even if his role isn't necessarily to start every single game he's definitely got a role coming off the bench for us and making a real difference so um the big thing i want to ask you now ben is like what do you foresee as trossard's role coming into this season like do you see him as a super sub do you think that he's going to be vying for those starting spots like 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 what are your expectations of him yeah i think it's really interesting because obviously we've got reese on the left as well who um he signed his new contract. I think it was four years or whatever, four plus one. Um, so there's loads of competition out there already. And I probably agree with you that Trossard isn't a like-for-like switch with Martinelli. But he has been really impressive in this sort of... Well, it's, it's been a sort of weird hybrid, hasn't it? Of left eight at points. And sometimes he's been playing out wide. And sometimes he's been in the middle. And he's been really successful. And you're, you're right. You know, I think a lot of people expected him to start where Havertz started against City. Um, and we might see that against Nottingham Forest, or we might see Eddie and Ketty. I'd be surprised if we saw Havertz start up front, because I don't think we'll need the Declan Rice-Thomas Party pairing in midfield. Um, so there will be another space for an attacker, I think. It's just Trossard feels like he does his best work off the bench. It's kind of a bit like Nelson, in that 
you see all of his talent when he comes on for like four or five cameos and everyone says, oh, he should start, he must start, you know, must start the next game, whatever. And then he starts and you don't always see his best or he's not the most impactful. And I'm, we, you can talk about like Fulham when he's got his three assists and I know he got the most assists um, as the second half of last season for us, but it does always feel to me like he is that sort of finisher um, I know I've spoken about them before, but sort of coming on at 60, 70 minutes and just causing chaos. Um, and I think that's where he probably does his best work in this Arsenal team at the moment. But we might, you know, if he's good enough, well, we might have to tweak the system to get him to play more regularly and drop someone else and bring him in and, you know, sort it out around him. But for now, I think he will be off the bench and then starting the odd game, but mostly sort of deputising any of the front four, I'd say. So like the front three and then that left eight role. Yeah, and that left eight role is really interesting because I think that whenever people talk about that role, obviously you think about that Havertz is maybe play there in the majority of games from what we've read and, and seen for a lot of the preseason. And people talk about Fabio Vieira, they talk about Smith Rowe coming back into the team. But as you say, like Trossard has played there in preseason. He has been impressive. Like it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could win. You know, like in those games where we do want to play with that really advanced state, that maybe Havertz is out of form or taking the knock or tired or something, that Trossard could jump straight in front of those two in the line and um, and take a lot of minutes from that way. So I think it will be really interesting to see because I think that the fact that he's such a Swiss Army knife means that he's going to get a lot of minutes. It's just whether or not he's going to really nail down like a proper position, like a like a starting position, and and whether or not he's gonna be happy with that. He, he kind of reminds me of like a much better version of Maitland Niles, in that mm. he has so many different positions that he's good at that he might almost be the jack of all trades and king of none in our side because he can sort of cover four or five positions. And you know, if he was if you were looking at left eight, you'd say. If coming off the bench, Fabio Vieira might be ahead of him. Emma Smith Rowe might be in the mix. A uh, left wing, you've got uh, Reese Nelson, who might be in the mix. So it's sort of a case of he can come on wherever, but he's not guaranteed to be sort of second choice in any of those positions. Yeah, and to be fair, I think we probably saw that at Brighton, didn't we? Where he played off the left, he played striker, he played off striker, played, played left, left wing, wing back. back. Yeah. yeah, so he's definitely got a lot about his game, um, and. From looking at it, like uh, we've got another player coming in. So Fabrizio Romano, within the last hour at the recording of this, has said that we've agreed a deal with Brentford to sign David Raya, who is Spanish, not Italian, Ben. Not to say that you said that, and that was a joke. Um, but um, uh, it looks like we're bringing in someone who's going to be like a real competition to, to Aaron Ramsdale, who um, has seen his number two in Matt Turner depart to Nottingham Forest, which is, I think, a really good move for Matt Turner, firstly, because I think... For him to to come from MLS at such a like at the age he was, what was he like twenty eight when he first came over, and for him to come over from MLS and spend a year here and then go on to potentially be a number one another Premier League club is is pretty stellar for him. Um, but I do think that it's it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because there's there's a lot of of opinion going around about what this means, what it means for Ramsdale, what it means for Raya, whether or not they can coexist. It, it, my personal opinion is that you don't normally see two very, very good goalkeepers stay at one club for very long. And I think you can look at the Edisons 
who you know who has Ortega behind him, and you have the Allisons that has I think Kelleher behind him, and they're never really threatened. And I think the the big reason why they're not threatened is because the the clubs have one hundred percent faith in them. So it does raise a few very interesting questions about Ramsdale. Who's obviously signed a long term deal in May. He's coming off of what I'd call a good but not great season, but he has progressed and he is still young. So you have to think, what does the club think of Ramsdale? He's, we're buying a keeper for £30 million who is arguably as good, possibly rated the same or possibly higher than, than Ramsdale at this point in time. So it's definitely a keeper that isn't going to be happy playing second fiddle. So I'm going to point this towards you, Drew. The, it's, it's the big question now is that I would imagine Ramsdale for the moment is number one, but obviously football changes very quickly. Do you think Ramsdale and Raya can coexist? No, I don't really think so. Um, and we talked a lot about uh, about it off air earlier. I just kind of feel like there's, there's a lot of context in both directions. Obviously, that thing comes into play. Firstly, both keepers are in the national team picture now. Raya just started for Spain in the summer. Um, so he's on the cusp of maybe winning the number one shirt, you know, given questions around some of the other keepers that Spain have at the moment. Ramsdale is also in the national discussion. Euro 2024 is coming up, you know, in less than 12 months' time. It seems weird to me that a uh, keeper in Raya's position, both at Brentford as recognized as one of the, maybe the top five or six shot stoppers in, in the Premier League, would want to actively move from Brentford to, granted, the Champions League club in Arsenal, and then theoretically start maybe 10, 12, 15 times next season if Ramsdale still the undisputed number one. That just doesn't feel right to me in terms of that just doesn't really make sense from his standpoint. Also, the fee we're paying is the same or more than what we paid for, for Ramsdale. So are we really paying the same amount for a keeper that you know might just kind of sit there? I mean, obviously, you, you want to replace Turner. I think this is maybe more of us looking at a market opportunity in terms of we didn't expect Turner to maybe leave this summer. He he ended up leaving. You know, how do you replace Tony? Was a very, very good deputy. None of our third or fourth choice keepers, the youngsters, are ready. I don't think Carl Jacob Hine or is, is 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 there yet. Obviously, <laughs> no one likes tradition. Obviously, so you needed someone, right? So I think Ryan fits the bill in terms of we targeted Ryan before we targeted Ramsdale, um, and Yaki Kanya at the club is is basically Ryan's mentor. So he probably had a say in this, I assume, but. From just a minute standpoint, you, you just don't see keepers heavily rotated anymore. You usually have your number one is playing in Premier League you know, at least three or four times a season. You know, he'll likely get all Champions League matches as well. And then you have your deputy that usually is when it gets the residual um, domestic cups. So you're looking at maybe uh, five or six starts for, for Ryan or whoever doesn't win out. So I don't think they can coexist long term. I think we're going to see it for one season. Whoever kind of pulls ahead, I think the other one will probably not be happy with just being an undisputed number two. And you just can't think of many examples of that lasting for long. Everyone points to, to Kepa at Chelsea, but Kepa used to be Chelsea's number one, and then Chelsea lost faith in him. He also wanted to leave when Mendy came in. He wasn't happy at being a deputy, but he had no offers came in. He stayed and just got lucky when he bided his time because Mendy fluffed it. And then the incoming manager preferred Kepa over Mendy, and then he got his job back. But actively, Chelsea was trying to get rid of Kepa. They, they weren't trying to keep him for competition. So I think there's a bit of uh, the rhetoric around that needs to kind of change. You look at the likes of someone like Nemeno Nor has never had a competitive number two for the 12 years he's been at Bayern. You know, you look at Real Madrid's keeper situation, same thing. They've never had 
I couldn't even tell you the number two at Real Madrid, honestly. Yeah, so there you go. But, but even when it was when Courtois came in, it was Kayla Navas' last season on his contract. So there was a clear pathway. Navas is going to leave. Courtois came in, but Courtois ousted Navas, even though he had one year left on his contract. Courtois came in as the undisputed number one. Navas on the way out next season wasn't number two. And then when Navas came in, it was Casillas' last season at Real Madrid. So there was a clear pathway to, we know you're not going to be here next year. We're going to replace you. But so before Ramsley just signed a contract extension, Ryan's going to be on a five-year contract. So that doesn't just, to me, that just seems like the option is there to say, if Raya wins the job, so we're going to stick with him. Because a lot of the numbers around Raya do point to, he might be slightly better stylistically for Arteta. Um, again, we wanted him before, you know, his, his goalkeeping mentor is at the club. It's just like all those pieces kind of fit in terms of like, maybe Raya's that guy. But then again, you never know. Football's a funny old game, right? You never know what's going to happen. But I just don't see it happening for more than a season. And that's fine because if, if Ryan ends up being at Ramsdale, we're, we're clearly getting then the better keeper. And then you can cash on Ramsdale, whose value is still quite high because he did sign that extension. So then you can potentially make money off of a Ramsdale sale. And we paid a considerable amount of money for him. So if we can actually make profit off Ramsdale if we were to sell him, that's a win-win all across the board. So um, I just didn't expect it this season. But if, if it turns out to work in our favor, then I guess we're okay with it. Yeah, I think it's a really, as you say, unexpected situation because I think that you've got a keeper in Ramsdale who has improved in his time at the club so far, continuously over the years. But I still think that maybe we're almost kind of a victim of our own success because it's the fine margins now, isn't it? And we saw that more than anyone last season is that the fine margins of when you're up against Manchester City trying to win the Premier League title sometimes you can think a player is pretty good and maybe have doubts that they're going to be good enough. And I think maybe we have a little bit of that Ramsdale in the sense that, you know, as far as I, I think he's like 25, 26, he's still got a long time until he's realistically in what you stereotypically call a goalkeeper's prime years. But at the same time, you know, some soft goals last season, a few clangers, you know, he's not impenetrable. So maybe this is, Arsenal's way of saying, look, we like you. We think you're really good. We can give you a new deal, but we're not 100% convinced on you. So as I was saying earlier, when we were talking about it, it's almost like they're putting Ramsdale and Raya into that Gladiators Coliseum. And realistically, when two guys get in the Gladiators Coliseum, only one comes out. And I don't think that um, you can really kind of make the the case that that you can span football out, which is why we don't typically see dual number ones at any club. So, Varun, I want you to now look into your crystal ball, if you've got a crystal ball there, unlikely, I know, and tell me how you think this season's going to go in the sense of Raya versus Ramsdale. Like, do you think, do you see one coming out on top, or do you think it's going to be a little bit inconclusive? Um, If I'm honest, my instinct says that Ramsdale kind of retains a number one position at the moment. However, I think it's it's fairly obvious that Raya is going to at least get the the Champions League, the Cups, those kinds of competitions. He, honestly, I don't even know if he would get the Carabao Cup. We generally tend to play our youth there. So FA Cup and Champions League, he'll play those games as far as we go in both. My opinion is still that I think he is going to get some games in the league. There is always a spell where... We need rotation in the league, the Christmas period being kind of the most obvious one that jumps to mind because we're playing games then at the same frequency 
as we do in September and October when we have midweek European games. I think there's no issue whatsoever if we end up playing Raya in the odd league game in the Christmas fixtures. And then obviously, like Drew has said, like you've said as well, Luke, if we have a period or an occasion where maybe Ramsdale has a very uh, noticeable mistake in a game that costs us somewhere, maybe it'll be a bit of a warning sign that Raya gets the next match. Just Arteta's message that, you know, you're not undroppable, you're not irreplaceable. Um, and ultimately the goal is to, for both keepers to push each other to that next level. I still think Ramsdale is the one that comes out on top in that, in the end, and I think he'll be our number one. But um, it's very difficult to predict. It might be the toughest battle in our squad right now to predict what the situation will be in 12 months' time. Yeah, I mean, really, I think it's been one of those things that it could change so many times just in the space of the first few months. I remember when Ramsdale signed, we were expecting him to sit on the bench for 12 months and he was in the team within one or two. So, yeah, and I, I do think that this is going to be something that is going to watch with great interest. Um, but what, another player, and this is really, really interesting cases. Like I think at the end of last season, Kieran Tierney, we weren't seeing him. And also, it looked like even at left-back, you're seeing Kiria start ahead of him and, and, and stuff like that. So, But it feels like over this pre-season period, it feels like he's he's worked his way a little bit further inside. I know we saw Timber play left back um, in a, in the charity shields, but I do think that the fact that he comes off the bench uh, to replace Timber rather than um, uh, Kirio playing there or Tomiyasu coming off the bench does signal to me one of two things. Either the club are trying to prime him to sell him, which could be true, but like... I don't feel like we, he comes on in the community shield if that's the case, but that's just my opinion. But it just feels like over the preseason, we've seen a bit more, a bit more of him. It feels like with Timber possibly playing on the right and possibly playing that inverted um, role on the right, it kind of gives a little bit of a doorway opening for Tierney to play a more orthodox left um, left back role on the other side. Um, but also we've seen he's been linked to Rosostad's either on loan. I've, I've seen links that. Um, we're kind of looking at clubs that potentially are going to um, make transfer offers for him. So Ben, in terms of Tierney, at the end of last season, did you think he was gone? And has your opinion changed now? Do you think he's got a future Arsenal, or do you think it's just a case of putting him in the in the in the window? I'd like him to have a future at Arsenal, but um, I do I do think he's gone. I was I mean I was sort of. To, to go back to Tommy Asso, I sort of worry about him a bit as well, as good as he is, 1v1, you know, they always say about availability being the best ability, and he's very rarely available. But um, I think you can probably coat Tierney with the same brush in that regard. You know, when it comes to crunch time, we've seen uh, Tierney, Tommy Asso, Party all sort of break down with injuries in, in the past. Um, and I think Tierney quite clearly doesn't fit what Mikel Arteta wants to do in the biggest games um, and what you know Pep Guardiola has been doing for the last six months and what we've been doing for the last year with four centre-backs playing across the back four. Um, it does just feel like we're waiting on a bid, but we're not getting any. So we're sort of keeping our options open and saying, you know, we don't necessarily want you, but we're not going to make it obvious that we don't want you. So you can ha have some game time here and there. 
you know, play in preseason. And as I say, I'd like him to stay. I think he's got some great qualities, but it feels like he's sort of just being kept like in a warming dish somewhere for <laughs> someone else to come and take him. So he's not, you know, completely cold for preseason or the start of the season. You could be right, to be honest. I think he was linked very heavily to Newcastle, wasn't he? And it felt like maybe we were banking a bit on them. Yeah. And maybe you're looking at the other teams that could afford him in the league and you're looking at Villa, who already have two very good left-backs, and maybe Leicester, who have now gone down. Yeah, Man City as well have been uh, linked, which yeah. is interesting. I know there was a, a lot of Twitter rumour about a Tierney-Laporte swap deal that might happen. Um that I don't think it will necessarily, but that was something that was sort of floated and it made me chuckle that we've sort of, because he's, he's worth about, what, 25, 30 million? I think so. For Probably sure. maybe a bit less if you're selling abroad, but you don't really want to sell abroad because that takes away the homegrown value as well. It's just sort of, he, he felt when he came in in 2019, he was like the guy. He, was, he played for Celtic, you know, he was excellent there. He was being rampaging captain at one point, yeah. it felt like. And now he's sort of not so much on the trash can, but in departures, waiting for a flight. Um not you know, he's not he's not Nicholas Pepe, you know, Tavares, Sambi Laconga style. It's kind of already <laughs> one foot on the aeroplane, but he's very much getting there. Um and it's a bit I mean it's a bit sad, I think, because he was always like I, I always felt like he understood what it was like to play for Arsenal in that period when very few did. Yeah. I think he really kind of has a link with the fans that he was very, very early. And I think um, it was something uh, that, especially at that point when we weren't doing as well as we are now, um, where we didn't really have a lot of, of those kind of links to players. I think that he was a bit of a breath of fresh air and it's, as I think same as you, I would like to see him stay, but it's hard, isn't it? When realistically he's not going to get loads of football, and, and you know, say maybe he's working his way back in. Crazy things have happened under Arteta. It's hard to really know. And you know, so you make the, the the kind of correlation there that you know potentially he's in departures. I think there's a player that probably isn't on the plane, but he's probably fighting the flight attendant to try and get onto a plane. And that's uh, following Balogun, who you know has made pretty much no mystery of the fact that he wants to leave. And um, it looks like Inter Milan wants him. Monaco have had a bid rejected, but I'm not sure. So someone point out if they have. I've not actually seen what potential price that was. Um, but it looks like Inter Milan potentially are looking at a, a, around like a 30 to 35 million euros, which looks again to fall below what has been reported to be our 50 million pounds um, price point. Uh, Drew, so how do, how do Arsenal play this? Because Arsenal have an objectively very good talent that went to went to Liga in last season and scored 20 plus goals for a for a poor team. I think that's something that maybe isn't stated enough when you're talking about his record is the fact that Balogun wasn't playing for a team that created a, a particularly like large amount of chances. And obviously you've you're looking at the like of Rasmus Hojland that that played for Atalanta, who are a good team in Syria, and he scored what, like nine goals in Syria and ended up going to Manchester United for a pretty sizable chunk. So Obviously, you've also got, I think, Appenda went to uh, RB Leipzig or he's going to RB Leipzig. I might be wrong for... Yeah, he's um, Yeah, for something like, again, a pretty sizable chunk, but not as much as, as Hoyland's. Um, what If you're Arsenal and you've got Balogun, who I believe is on two years left of his deal, and ideally, I think 
the anyone in for him probably knows that ideally you want to send him this summer if he's not willing to extend. How do Arsenal extract maximum value for him um, uh, in this kind of situation? I don't think you can any longer. I, I don't necessarily think that's Arsenal's fault, though. I think a lot of fans are going to look and say, oh, look at us, it's another poor sale. But there's a few things. First of all, the, the clubs that were heavily linked with Balogun in, in the beginning of the summer, you had Erby Leipzig, you had um, AC Milan, Inter Milan, um, and then you had um, who was it? Crystal Palace, so the main four that were all, always constantly linked. Milan have already sourced Anderson Forward and Noah Okafor from uh, Red Bull Salzburg. You had uh, Leipzig already got Openda, like you said. Um, and, and to bring Inter are broke. Like, you know, <laughs> they're a big club, but Inter has something like 200, they had something like 250 million pounds of debt coming out of COVID. So whenever they make a sale, it's hard for them to spend. And also, I think Inter's record spend is something like 42 million euro. They've never spent 50 million pounds on a player ever in their history. They've only eclipsed 40 million euro, I think, two or three times in the last 15 years. So expecting them to do it now when they have debt and their owners are no longer pumping money into the club it's hard to see where they're going to come up with that kind of money. So I think at this point, it's probably looking at if maybe you get lucky with Monaco. Uh, I was ch- chatting on Twitter the other day, but maybe you can look at um, uh, Lens as a place that can maybe uh, be an option because they have Champions League next season. They did sell a Panda. They also sold Fafana, so they have money available. But spending that kind of money goes against their transfer policy as a club. And this is kind of where I, I talk with a lot of uh, Premier League fans. Like, you know, continental clubs do not spend fifty million pounds on players. It's very rare, and only certain clubs can actually do that financially for, for any number of reasons. So, I think the only way forward now is it's either bite the bullet and say we'll take thirty to thirty-five million, and that's kind of like a final final offer kind of thing, or you hope for Premier League interest. West Ham could come available because you know they just sold Skamaka, so. They need a center forward. The other two are what? And Antonio and Ings, and they're both on the wrong side of 30. Um, Palace's interest seems to have cooled. The options are pretty limited right now. So if you want Balogun gone, it's, it's, I think it's two things. I think it's one, you, you, you can't get your 50 million. You have to be okay with that. You take 30 to 35 and just say, we're done with it. Or you find a solution where it's a loan with an obligation to buy uh, with a club that maybe can afford that 40 to 50 million you're looking for. That could be a possible avenue. But apart from that, I just don't see how we're going to get 50 million at this point. It would, I think it would take something astronomical and unexpected. And, and PSG just also fixed their issue. They just got a good job of Ramos as well. So there's that option off the table as well. So it's tricky at this point. I think if we maybe were more aggressive early on and kind of really put them in the shop window earlier in the summer, maybe one of those clubs could have, uh, maybe Leipzig could have spent the same money they spent on a Penda. They could have spent on a Balogun potentially. I really don't know. But I just don't see the optimal solution anymore. The other alternative is we wait maybe six months, see if he can rehabilitate himself, work himself into the team, maybe find an extension. But if not, then you really have to sell in January. But if you sell in January, you're going to get even less money because clubs are really picky about spending money halfway through the season, unless it's a dire, dire need. And even then, you really don't get max value. So we're kind of in a bit of a bind. And I do think we're going to have to – I don't think this is a transfer where we can say – we have to hold firm and get max value. I think if you're looking at, if someone came in for William Saliba this summer instead, that's when you kind of say, no, it's a hundred million and then maybe talk with you. With Balogun, there's talent there. I still don't think he actually fits Arsenal. I think if you look at how he played that stead around, I think they were a very counterattack based side. He played off the shoulder, ran into space a lot. 
he's not great at hold up play. His combination play isn't fantastic. I, I don't think he fits what Arsenal right now either. So unless he's okay with another one, which he's not, I think I just have to let him go and just take the hit and say, we got as much money as we could. And the market's kind of bearish right now as well. So I think it's half victim of circumstance and then half just like, yeah, maybe just try to do better next time with, with, a, with, a, with an asset that has value that you can't drop down. Yeah, and I, I imagine it's something that we'll see develop, especially as the the last kind of weeks, the transfer window uh, develop. But I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Like with the the community shield over, I think a lot of people say that's you know football's back now. Finally, it's back. We've now got the first game of the season on Saturday, uh, midday kickoff against Nottingham Forest at home. Um, uh, we're going to get back to our two podcasts a week schedule, so please stick with us. We're going to be back later in this week to do a Nottingham Forest preview. Thank you, Varun. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Ben. Um, uh, we have been the Bruce Banana FC podcast and look out next uh, to later in this week for the next episode. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us on. Erdegaard is joining in and he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the roof and touched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka... 